1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery.
0: You're listening to the SBF Defense on the Coindesk Podcast Network. This show is produced by Coinage and distributed by Coindesk. Be sure to follow the Coindesk podcast network for all of our shows and head to Coindesk.com for all our Sam Bankman-Fried coverage. Thanks for listening. FTX collapses this week. From crypto king to criminal suspects. The less generous view is that you have committed a massive fraud. I mean, I'm deeply sorry. Saying sorry means nothing. I made a series of mistakes that seem, they don't just seem dumb. They seem like the type of mistakes I could see myself having ridiculed someone else for having a I'm Zach Guzman. You're listening to the SPF Defense Podcast, an exclusive coinage investigation. I've met SPF in person three times. Once when he just bought the naming rights to the Miami Heat's arena, once in the Bahamas at their huge extravaganza with Tom Brady, and once at his parents' home under house arrest, ankle bracelet included. In fact, I was the last journalist to interview him before he was sent to prison for breaking his bail agreement. I showed up to his parents' house near Stanford's campus on a Sunday and was immediately greeted by a security guard who informed me I'd have to leave all my electronics with him outside. I had interviewed Sam plenty of times, just never after being wanted down with a metal detector, and certainly never while he was under house arrest. Three hours later, Sam agreed to answer questions from the coinage community, and surprisingly, handed me about 50 pages of documents outlining his defense strategy, and exactly what he says led to FTX's downfall. After reading it through and realizing neither myself nor anyone at Coinage is an attorney, we brought in the best person we could think of Mark Litt, the government's lead prosecutor in its case against Bernie Madoff. This is part one of our series investigating SBF's upcoming defense. In this episode, Mark Litt provides his unique insight on the unanswered questions surrounding the relationship between SBF and Caroline Ellison, his girlfriend turned cooperating witness. You were one of the former lead prosecutors on the Bernie Madoff case, one of the biggest Ponzi schemes, if not the largest Ponzi scheme in American history. When you look at that case and compare it and contrast it with what's being alleged that Sam Bankman-Fried did between Alameda and FTX, what do you see? Here,
1: the government is alleging, among other things, that promises were made to investors and promises were broken and the promises were material. So there's a couple of charges relating to derivatives trading fraud and conspiracy to commit that fraud. There's one, I think, for conspiracy to commit securities fraud and the substantive count of securities fraud. There is money laundering attached to those. So it's not a Ponzi scheme, but it's fraud. It just happens to be in a wrapper of cryptocurrency, which is
0: novel. Well, just start on what you would do if you were Sam's attorney. Well, what I would have been
1: doing and what I would be doing right now is developing whatever I can to cross the cooperators who are going to be
0: critical to the prosecution. When you look at, I guess, kind of what's happening here, and I guess the fact, as this goes to trial, that you're going to need to convince 12 jurors that a crime was carried out. I mean, how does that element of cryptocurrency or the fact that maybe it's not as simple as an outright Ponzi scheme, what does that do to the prosecution side, the defense side when you think about what's going to happen in this case.
1: I don't think it changes it all that much. You know, in a trial involving an equity stock or a bond, you may have to do some explanation to the jury about some of the terminology they're going to hear about. Cryptocurrency is, is newer. You might have to do a little bit more of that to provide context. But the case isn't about cryptocurrency. It's about, again, representations made and not kept. It's about taking money from one pocket and using it for purposes of another company in another pocket mm-hmm. without the investor sure. knowing that that's not hard for a jury to understand i mean the defense may want to make it about cryptocurrency and go off on a tangent about the intricacies of trading and and, and all of that but it's not really relevant to the charges
0: yeah let's talk about some of those too because when you think about what is alleged here and the relationship between SBF as the majority owner of a trading firm, Alameda Research, and also essentially operating FTX, a trading platform, and all of that playing out in real time, a lot of the defense seems to be resting on this idea of there was a collapse at one point, and it was unclear what SBF knew between the happenings of Alameda Research and their positions on FTX. But you're talking about charges that go back years prior to that collapse. I mean, how do you see all of those elements playing out at trial?
1: Well, most of the charges relate to the time frame of 2019 all the way through 2022. And I think in 2021, he gave up the title of CEO of Alameda, and it got passed along to two co-CEOs. But the allegations in the indictments say, notwithstanding that, he was controlling and directing the operations of Alameda. So the allegations, and these are allegations in the indictment, are that it was basically a deception, uh, or that he was trying to shield himself from liability by, by doing that, by distancing himself from whatever Alameda was doing thereafter. But the government has decided, based on the evidence it has, and I suspect its multiple cooperators and the grand jury alleged, that. In fact, notwithstanding that, he did control and direct everything that Alameda did up until the very end. So sure, I fully expect the defense will be, it wasn't me, it was Ms. Ellison or whoever that was controlling it, but there's going to be more than one witness to say the opposite of that. And in my experience, the government wouldn't charge this as a he said, she said Mm -hmm. case, which means there's more than Ms. Ellison. There's Ms. Ellison, there are documents, and there's at least one other person.
0: True. In saying Caroline Ellison was the one running Alameda, and having part of the defense be, look, I didn't know what was going on over there, and it wasn't told to me until it was too late. As a defense, how does a court, how does a jury, how does prosecution look at something like that?
1: Well, I think it's a defense that the prosecution expects and would have expected in advance of charging the case. So what the prosecution does is it explores and develops whatever evidence there is to the contrary. And they have to persuade themselves before charging the case that on balance, they think they can persuade a jury of 12 beyond a reasonable doubt that the evidence is that he knew exactly what was going on and was directing, in fact, the activities. If the defense
0: is able to show that SBF was not aware of certain things that were happening on the Alameda side that may have led to the collapse, that may have led to the idea of customers not being able to access funds. Does that persuade against being found guilty?
1: It might or might not. But if you're a member of a conspiracy, you're on the hook for the actions of the Mm co-conspirators as long as they're reasonably foreseeable. So if you don't need to know everything that your co-conspirators are doing to be criminally liable for those actions, but if you willfully join a conspiracy and actions are taken in furtherance of the conspiracy by others, until you withdraw unequivocally from the conspiracy, you're on the hook for it. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the reason why you'll see in the indictment, these are charged in pairs of conspiracy and then the substantive offense. It's easier for the government to prove the conspiracy than the substantive offense. Hmm. Substantive offense being wire fraud, securities fraud. The conspiracy charge being conspiracy to commit wire fraud, conspiracy to commit securities fraud. To be guilty of a conspiracy, you have to knowingly, I think willfully, join at least one other person with an objective of violating a United States law. And one step has to be taken in furtherance of that conspiracy.
0: Up until this point, it sounds like the prosecution's been talking about messages that self-deleted, not having maybe as much of a trail that may have been there in the past. And if you look at other cases that have been tried in corporate fraud, some of the other defenses of, look, I trusted people to do things, they were the ones that were the problem here, not me. Of course, that one still resulted in a conviction. The
1: government has a lot of evidence, seemingly at least by what's in the indictment, to the contrary, whether it's changing the names of entities to distance them from Alameda, whether it's defrauding auditors so that the financial statements don't accurately reflect the financial position of the company, whether it's telling investors, investors in FTX, what the relationship between FTX and Alameda is when that's not. So all of those things, as I read the indictment, are not just based on documents, but they're going to be based on, as I said earlier, more than one person is going to corroborate that. And at the end of the day, he's going to have to decide whether he's going to testify to try to refute what probably three witnesses at, at minimum plus a whole bunch of pure fact witnesses, are going to say about what he knew and when he knew it. In cases
0: like that, you know, Elizabeth Holmes may be a good example to look at as far as people testifying in their own defense. I mean, what are you expecting?
1: What do I expect from him? Yeah. You know, look, every case is different. In general, defense lawyers don't like their clients to testify and
0: generally advise against it. I presume lawyers also probably don't want their clients ahead of the trial talking to media as well.
1: That's generally true (laughs) as well. And the reason for that is that, first of all, lawyers tend to be conservative people, not necessarily politically, but in terms of... uh, Sharing any details whatsoever. Well, and being uh, phobic of risk. Mm -hmm. And... Doing a direct examination of your client is completely within your control. You can tell the story. But once you step away from the lectern and the government prosecutor comes aboard, I mean, you have some idea of what's coming, but you don't know everything. And you lose control of the process. And even the brightest, glibest, most charming criminal defendant tends to overestimate their capacity to wow the jury and outthink the prosecution and be able to answer every question in a satisfactory way that doesn't create an additional problem for them. Yeah. In addition, if the judge finds that the defendant has lied in the course of their testimony, then if they're convicted, when it comes time for sentencing, both under the sentencing guidelines and under the 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 statute that the judge sentences under, the judge is going to take that into account and it won't be helpful to the
0: client. In in terms of, you mentioned kind of having three co-conspirators that the government's now working with, right? You could look at that as a three-on-one. I mean, when you put all the facts together, what are the odds of a conviction?
1: Well, first of all, I can't put all the facts together because I'm on the outside looking in. Yeah. But You can't assess that kind of thing without actually meeting the witnesses, having an idea of how they would stand up, how they would present to juries. Yeah. What is the grist for cross-examination? But look, based on the odds, 95% plus of all federal cases wind up in a plea Mm -hmm. or a conviction. Most of those happen by plea. Of the ones that go to trial, there are two kinds of cases that go to trial. Triable cases, meaning cases where it's close. And then there are cases that go to trial just because it's just too big. There is no deal to be had. There's no cooperation to be given. And the reputational damage is done. The business damage is done. And any way one turns, one is looking at really bad options. And those cases can go to trial too if the defendant has the resources to fund that kind of Operation. Yeah. Looking at it from the outside, it looks to me like this is closer to the second category of case Mm -hmm. than the
0: first category of case. I'd probably agree with that. So that seems to be the the chance is slim, is what I'm hearing. It's slim, and you're looking at a 12 person jury, you're going for one of those people to say something.
1: Yeah, and you got to get one person on each of seven or eight counts that are being tried in
0: this first trial. Okay. So not likely is what I'm hearing.
1: Yeah. But I would say that with respect to almost any criminal case in federal court, it's not so much special, you know, that that assessment is not so specifically directed at this one. Yes. But there's nothing about what I've seen in this case that makes me question that assessment.
0: And it sounds like what you're saying is, if you are the defense and you have three co-conspirators, what are you going to do? It might be to attack the credibility of one of those co-conspirators.
1: you got to attack the credibility of all the co-conspirators.
0: How, as a defense attorney, do you attack credibility of three co-conspirators? One at a time. <laughs> I
1: mean, it's different for each one. This one is, is further complicated by the fact that one of them was off and on in a romantic relationship with the defendant, mm-hmm. which right off the bat leads to all kinds of things that you could cross-examine on and could muddy up the trial with all kinds of things that are only known to two people. And, you know, a defense lawyer has access to their client who knows things that you and I don't know as we sit here about conversations uh, that he's had with each of those three people, um, things he knows that they did or approved of or suggested or whatever, that sitting here today, I can't tell you, Mm -hmm. but you want to extract from your client's head and documents to the extent they have any documents, everything that they can think of that those people were involved in.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you're familiar also with Judge Kaplan, the judge in this case, and you and I were talking about, you know, that strategy clearly run into some issues when you're putting out documents as the prosecution steps in and Judge Kaplan hits SBF with a gag order and now is potentially talking about revoking bail. I mean, that playing out now in public, what do you make of it as an attorney and any impact it might have on the case?
1: I don't think that what's happened to date will have much impact on the case. I haven't read all the briefing on the issue of bail. I tend to doubt that Judge Kaplan will put him in jail at this point. If I had to guess he'll give him a rather stern warning and he'll be on a very tight leash and The next time, I don't think Judge Kaplan would hesitate, but it's a pretty draconian sanction, and trial is not that far away
0: mm-hmm.
1: so that's you know that's what I would forecast the jury won't know about all of this. You and your viewers may be paying very close attention to this, but the odds are the 12 people plus a couple of alternates on the jury aren't. So all of the ins and outs and things that might have happened in the months leading up to the trial, first of all, they won't know about. Second of all, they'll be instructed, to the extent they know about them, to disregard them. Mm-hmm. And third, they're going to have a four or six weeks or however long the trial is going to be to get thoroughly steeped. and They're going to have a lot of things to think about from what goes on right in front of them. So I think anything that has happened to date will have little effect on on the jury.
0: Connecting the dots back to your days prosecuting Bernie Madoff in high-profile cases like these, obviously, I think any sort of news coverage out there might impact a potential juror. How... Big of a factor is that in trying a case like this, both for the government and the defense?
1: The two sides have different incentives and goals. I mean, the government would like to have a hermetically sealed trial record that's within their control and that they know what the jury is going to see and hear and not have any outside prior influence. And, you know, on the other hand, a, a defense that may be. Uh, constrained as to what they're going to be able to bring out in Mm -hmm. evidence is going to want to try to do what they can to prepare the battlefield and prepare the potential jurors for what they're going to hear. But, you know, the Southern District probably has a million and a half people. I don't know how many potential jurors. I mean, the odds of succeeding at that in some significant way Mm -hmm. are... Low
0: On the points of, I guess, the defense, right? When we talk about what's happening there, you mentioned the personal ties to the prosecution's witnesses, not just Caroline Ellison, but also his co-founder being a friend since high school, essentially. What do you make of, I guess, those connections in how the defense tries to play them? I don't know. How Is there anything that. like usual when you're dealing with co-conspirators that aren't necessarily so, shall we say, attached? I guess what I'm getting at too is as if you put your defense attorney hat on is how effective the strategy is to leak diaries like that that may point back to a centerpiece of the defense, which is the person I installed in this position to run the hedge fund I used to run that then endangered my trading platform was clearly in over her head. Well, first of all,
1: I don't know if his leaking of the diaries was part of a defense strategy or a personal strategy. Second, sort of punching down at somebody is not necessarily a good look when you're in front of a jury, particularly if that person happens to be, from what I've seen, a rather diminutive looking, nice young woman who, you know, used to be in love with and something happened along the way. Yeah. Uh, and on top of that, you've got the prosecution who could just take that and say, well, you put her there for a reason. You knew her better than anybody. Why would you do that? Why would you put somebody who was not prepared to fill that role? Oh, I know why. Maybe it was because you thought you could control them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe it's because you could direct and have this figurehead there who really couldn't was ineffectual and couldn't do anything. Interesting. And so everything can be a little bit turned around on its head.
0: Got it. No, that's a good point. I do wonder though, if a lot of this is kind of posturing in a defense strategy around that piece, but it does seem core to the defense, which is what Sam knew and when, what the co-conspirators kept from him. But to your point on the charges, how much of that matters when it comes to what the prosecution is trying to show around fraud, money laundering, that may have happened even before that question at time.
1: Right. A lot of the conduct at issue occurred between twenty nineteen and twenty twenty one, before Ms. Allison took control of, of mm-hmm. not didn't take control, but was put in as co-CEO of Alameda.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, the the government has whatever evidence they have about that time frame and then you run into the conspiracy issue that we talked about where he doesn't necessarily have to know or direct what's going on with the conspiracy once it's established and up and running. And what they're doing is a a reasonably foreseeable
0: consequence of what the plan is. One of the questions, too, around it, going back to, I guess, the setup, right? And my question about doing things in the press, and if you're a defense attorney, not wanting a lot of this out there. Sam, at one point in an interview, talked about setting up bank accounts for FTX in the name of Alameda Research. Especially in 2017, if you named your company, like, we do cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, arbitrage, multinational stuff. No one's going to give you a bank account if that's your company name. Among other things, it's a terrible company name. But, but yeah. also, they're, they're just going to be like, oh, geez. Yeah, no, we've been warned about companies with this name. Like, <laughs> we're, you know, you're going to have to go through the enhanced process. And I don't want to bother with that right now. It's almost lunchtime. (laughs) So, um, But everyone wants to serve a research institute. So that was a quote about why he went with bank accounts under the Alameda Research name. And obviously, since then, a lot's been made about the tangled web of banking relationships between Alameda Research, where funds were, when FTX customers were depositing money. How much of that quote, when you say, I set these bank accounts up in the name of Alameda Research, is a nail in the coffin?
1: Well, it's a powerful admission. It's an admission of bank fraud, of knowing that he wouldn't have been able to open the bank accounts if he was accurate and honest about what was going on. And whether or not that charge is in this, and it's an interesting, actually legal question, I don't know if the evidence relating to that will come in to this trial or not. But if and when it does, I'm willing to predict the government will be playing the clip too. Yeah. Because it shows a state of mind. It shows a consciousness of guilt.
0: Let me ask you this. The idiot defense, so-called, for clients that say, look, it wasn't my fault. I didn't understand what was going on here. I'm not a criminal just because the thing failed. Like The line between failure versus fraud is something we've discussed on this show before. Mm -hmm. Particularly in the realm of cryptocurrency, it seems to be a rather convenient out for a lot of people who are caught up in these problems. When you look at, I guess, carelessness versus a criminal intent in this case, as you noted, very different than a Ponzi scheme. How does that factor in?
1: Well, it's tough for an MIT graduate who comes off as kind of a master of the universe type to argue that he's an idiot, that he didn't know. He's testifying before Congress. He's raising billions of dollars. He's created a platform where there's trading of the Billion or ten billion a day, or or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Doesn't sound like an idiot to me. So the idiot defense is tough. The idiot defense is tough. (laughs) I guess it's kind of most defenses are tough. I mean, yeah, clearly. Again, part of this is a matter of self-selection. I mean, the government gets to pick and choose what charges to bring Mm -hmm. and what defendants to charge, and the government doesn't always just charge easy cases. Sometimes they charge hard cases. Yeah. But there is a, a selection process, right? I mean, this is not just completely random what's out there. The government tends to char- charge the cases that are, and the crimes that are most readily provable mm-hmm. because the burden is very high. So they're selective in what they charge. And that's one of the reasons why the statistics are tilted the way they are uh-huh. toward conviction because they tend to charge cases where they have enough evidence. Mm-hmm.
0: Almost everybody, right now, Is in the camp of, this is a slam-dunk case. There's no chance that SBF didn't actually commit the crimes that he's alleged to have committed. In that sliver of chance that you also agree is very slim, what would be the thing that you think actually got that done?
1: It would have to do with dismantling the testimony of the cooperators and showing that he didn't have criminal intent. Yeah. Didn't have knowledge, didn't have intent. Most of the charges in the indictment, relate to acts taken between 2019 and around June of 2022, not necessarily things that happened between June of 2022 and November of 2022. And the defense may want to make this case about the collapse of FTX and who is responsible for that. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a fair chance that the judge will sharply limit the defense's ability to do that. And what's important for the criminal case is, again, I keep returning to it, what's charged in the indictment, uh-huh. what's necessary for the government to prove in terms of the elements of the offense's charge. And the defense is going to be, the defense will try to create, I'll call it, sideshows and maybe make it about the bankruptcy, make it about the collapse, but that's not really what's fundamentally charged. Mm -hmm. And the judge's job is to keep the jury focused on what's relevant to what's charged. There's no flaw in claiming that you didn't know something. Uh The problem is to assert that, one, he's going to have to testify because nobody else is going to be able to assert that for him. So that's going to subject him to about three days of cross-examination. Second, There's going to be more than one witness, I expect, who's going to say, actually, he did know. And here's how he knew. Third, there may or may not be documents to support that. Mm -hmm. Fourth, I'm not sure how much this ties into the computer code business and what was alleged in the indictment is that he directed that the computer code be altered to allow certain transactions to occur. And fifth, the argument from the government would be, as the owner and having as much at stake as he did, is it really credible to believe that he didn't have his finger on the pulse? But I would have been at least sensitive to the fact that it could open those doors yeah. to an argument, to arguments and evidence about who's really to blame for the ultimate collapse Yes, that wouldn't be there if you didn't reference the collapse in the Indictment because if the collapse wasn't referenced, and if I'm the judge and the defense says but he wasn't responsible for the fact, I'd say, wait a minute, the collapse happened when? Oh, <laughs> November? Well, the charge conduct ended in October. Uh huh. So why is what happened in November relevant to the charges? If this whole case results
0: in SBF getting acquitted, if there's one piece that you would look at and say that's probably what did it, is that the thing in this weird universe where SBF gets off? that you would point to?
1: No, I think if he is acquitted of all the charges, his defense team will have successfully impeached the three cooperators and shown them to be liars.
0: As a community-owned Web3 Media outlet, Coinage will be breaking down everything we've learned together through this series and curating still unanswered questions at coinage.media. Join the community-led Inquisition at coinage.media. You've been listening to the SBF Defense on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Follow the Coindesk Podcast Network to get all the Coindesk shows in one place and head over to coindesk.com for all the Sam Bankman Freed coverage.